Welcome to the Marketicture Podcast. This is episode four, which I believe Eric told me last week was impossible. 90% of podcasts don't hit episode four, so we've made a huge amount of progress. Is that right, Eric? We made it. 90% of podcasts don't make it past the third episode, and then of those, 90% don't make it past episode 20. Okay, now we we have stretch goals. We're trying to get to episode 21. All right, so the Marketecture Podcast is a new thing we're doing, which is a weekly discussion of topics in AdTech and MarTech. I'm here with Eric Franchi, as well as our guest, Mike O'Sullivan, the CEO of Sincera.io. Uh, welcome, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. Quick disclosure, I'm an investor in Sincera. So if I'm nice to Mike, that would be why. So Mike, tell us what Sincera is. Yeah, certainly. So what Sincera is, is essentially a modern verification service. And, and what we mean by that is that there's just a series of questions that folks have about digital advertising that for so long have gone unanswered. You only have to look back at a bunch of press where there would be speculation in trades. It's like, hey, this is changing because three people told us they think it is. And there was nothing really quantified about it. And a lot of the verification providers, they do a great job at you know, viewability and, and contextual detection, but no one was really tackling all of these new questions around consent, around identity, which we'll be talking about today, and other areas that like directly impact you know a digital advertising business. So that's what we're focusing on is, is working with customers and and you know providing answers at scale for some of these questions. Yeah, so to kind of give a little more color on that, it's sort of like a census of out there, what technologies are being used, what the interactions of those technologies. Is that a good way to think about it? I think you could think about it that way if, if the census was programmatically collected and you know deterministic. So yeah, like I think that's fair. And then if you think about you know how complex a modern publisher's environment can be at some point, you know, you can see that you know, there's a lot of information that can be collected. So yeah, I think you can think about it as at least on the the first way that a lot of people connect with the company. It's it's a digital census. Got it. All right. Well, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have Mike on is that he tweeted um, this really fun chart at his. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter at Mike O'Sullivan. That was the top identifiers. So I think we all know that cookies, third party cookies, are going away, and there's this somewhat of a uh, Game of Thrones going on where a bunch of companies are trying to have their identifiers adopted as kind of the next identifier. And we could talk about whether it's a uh, there will only be one kind of situation, a Highlander, I'm mixing sci-fi now, a Highlander situation or whether there'll be multiple. But that's not kind of the important point. The, the interesting part was that Sincera through its data has a ranking of which identifiers it sees the most. So before we go into that, uh, Mike, what does it mean for a identifier to be ranked in this way? What, is this the amount of websites or, or something else? Yeah. So there's sort of two ways that we measure the identifier popularity, let's call it. So the first is, let's call it deployments and configuration. The publisher has actively made the choice to enable this identifier for their, you know, their buyers and others who interact with their ecosystem. This is very different than what you would see historically of like a lot of identifiers in the, you know, third party cookie sync era, which are just firing freely on publisher sites. And that still happens, but the publisher hasn't made a choice for this to happen. So this is really about which identifiers are publishers choosing to deploy. They make an active choice to enable this technology. And presumably they're choosing that because it makes the money downstream or they think it will in the future. 
I think they're they're fishing for in some cases. The average publisher has about 5.4 identifiers deployed, and that doesn't count duplicates. So they're they're basically seeing like which is going to win the horse race, and we want to benefit whichever one does. And how many total identifiers do you think there are out there right now? Well, if you count the legacy third party cookie IDs, you know I would say well north of 200. Oh, wow. Okay. 300. Yeah. Well, probably closer to 300. I would say. You know, and what's funny is there's tons of zombie identifiers out there too. Like, you know, that would be another interesting topic. It's like, let's go find companies that no longer exist, but there's still, you know, pixels firing for those IDs getting dropped all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and then of the ones that really matter, you know, it's a, it's a much smaller list for like ones that are configured for post cookie. You know, I would say there's, there's probably under 20 that could conceivably matter. Right. It's a post cookie. These are going to be a mixture of probabilistic or deterministic hashtag emails, things like that. Is that right? Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for most folks who, who don't sort of live and breathe this horse race, I think that's probably the most useful question to ask if you're ever talking about an identifier. Like, is this deterministic? And by deterministic, we mean 100% exclusively deterministic, or is this probabilistic? That's probably the one most useful question you can ask. And folks that are probabilistic often have a mix. They're like, we do both. And that's great, but it's not 100% deterministic. Like that's the real sort of demarcation point, I would say, for these uh, post-cookie IDs. All right. So let's get down to it. What we're going to do is a David Letterman style top 10 countdown of the top 10 IDs. For those of you who are younger than old people like me and Eric, David Letterman used to be a comedian on television, and he did a countdown of top 10 things. So let's just go through the top 10 and say who they are, what we know about them, any other color commentary, feel free to make fun of them if you'd like. So the 10th most uh, common ID would be Mercury, if I'm reading this chart correctly. Yeah. So that's from M1, and that's inside an agency, which is unique to the list. It started off very deterministic. And now it's a, a mix of probabilistic and deterministic IDs. It was once they started only for audience-based matching, meaning they never exposed the ID for the broader ecosystem. But now they're doing a lot more identifier-specific disclosure and sharing. They're very selective about the publishers who use it. I would think that's probably the most unique element of Mercury. And uh, Mercury spelled with a K because it was spun out of Merkel, I believe. So Merc- that's Mercury. That's right. It's is the it- old M1... ID. Right. So this is benefiting mostly those customers. Is this the only identifier that's, um, you know, uh, connected to an agency or is it certainly the the only scaled one? Yeah, I would say it is the only scaled and and owned by an agency, which I think is is pretty cool, too. Yeah. I wonder why there's not more of that or maybe it's to come. I think it's it's a huge technology investment to do it. And I think the fact that they, you know, they they acquired Merkel made it, uh, you know, gave them a head start. But it's a huge investment. Yeah, and it does uh, put an extra burden on them operationally because they would need all their partners on the buy side to uh, sync or adopt. All right, next, number nine, AMX RTB ID. I have no idea what that is. This one is a little bit of a, a an, an out there one too. This one is, is probabilistic and IP-based. So I don't know a ton of folks that use it. It's not as popular and it's not as popular in terms of SSP bidders picking it up, but it is... Uh, Who owns it? Who operates it? What does AMX stand for? It might be AdMixer. Yeah, AMX RTB ID. We'll do a real-time David follow. uh, 
Eric, remind me who Admixer is. I'm sorry if Admixer is listening. I just don't remember. Yeah, not, not familiar either. <laughs> okay, great. Good good ad for Admixer. Admixer, you got to come on to Marketecture. Um, yeah, they're a full stack solution. They have a, I, I believe they have, they have an SSP in Prebid. They have a DSP. It's one of those ones where if you don't really work with them, it's, it's tough to know because they have kind of a, a full stack. I don't think they're necessarily like a cafe media, but they're, they're kind of a, a full stop shop. Okay. Uh, number eight, Quantcast. I think we all know Quantcast. Yeah. So, so Quantcast is a little bit more well known in terms of what these guys are doing. This is actually a, a pretty straightforward first party cookie ID. So there are a few of the IDs in here that are essentially what third party cookies are today, but only for the first party space. So a publisher can use this for frequency capping and, and session capping on their own inventory, but not on others. Right. So Quantcast has had this tag on their pages, on many publisher pages for years. So now they're enabling the publishers to access the data in a first-party right. context. The publishers can control the deployment now. Got it. Number seven, uh, it's a little hard to read on your chart. It's unified something. There's two yeah, unifieds. Un- yeah. Good product feedback, Ari. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll clarify that. That's unified ID 2.0 from Trade Desk. Uh, a little, a little surprising to see it down at number seven. I would think it would have been higher. Yes. Yeah, so what do you make of that, Mike? Yeah. So what's interesting that the chart I think points out is that press and activity doesn't necessarily correlate to footprint. There is a lot of interest in Unified ID 2.0 in general. The the deterministic IDs have a harder time, or they they put much more due diligence into the publishers they work with because of the fact that they're. 100% deterministically tied to like email hashes or phone numbers. So I, I think it's a function of, you know, there is headwinds with deterministic IDs as sort of one. And then two, there's also an element here that you'll see that, you know, there's a huge time horizon. Publishers are super slow to update and change their configuration. So to put this in context, the majority of the publishers on this chart, although not all of them, are sourced from Prebit as well as the index exchange library, you know, Amazon, APS. But over 50% of pre-bid publishers are on a version of pre-bid that is two major versions old. Like imagine if you were to encounter someone who had an iOS device or an iPhone that was two major versions behind. But but that's the reality. So there is a time element here. It's very rare, um, although we will see it in a few of these IDs where new IDs sort of jump to the top. But because Unified AE 2.0 is 100% deterministic, it requires you know a relationship or some sort of conversation with Trade Desk to get it deployed uh, and working properly. It, it's going to take a while to to move up. But, and so, uh, are you? Yeah. Is your point about pre-bid that if it's an old pre-bid, it's hard to get a new identifier? Right, right. Like the module. Like so, if you're on an old version of pre-bid, there's two things. One, it may not even have the Unified AE 2.0 module. To, deployed, you like you haven't touched your adapters in two years, right? And right. this adapter has only been around for what, 22, 26 months. It's possible that the last time you updated your pre-bid, Unified ID 2.0 support didn't exist. And then again, the deterministic right. component. Hard to get people yeah. to get we, their emails. Yeah, we should point out that, um, Mike, this this was uh, you know, something that, that you um, put some context on your tweet. From Unified ID 2.0 to Quantcast, there's like a 50% drop in terms of the um, the deployment of it. So um, you're starting to see a bit of a bit of a power law emerging. Definitely, like you know, this is a top 10 list, 
but like not all are, are created equal. There is is definitely a, a breakpoint getting established here between Unified ID 2.0 and, and Quantcast. All right, let's move on to number six, uh, Ramp ID, which I think we're all pretty familiar with from LiveRamp. Ramp ID and Unified ID 2.0 are the only 100% deterministic identifiers. So I think that is something that's going you know, very strongly in, in their direction. It does make it harder to deploy. They can't just go after a huge long tail. You can't just enable every single automatic WordPress publisher to suddenly use Ramp ID the way some of these probabilistic ID solutions can. So a very strong showing. We actually built another metric that we can talk about at the end called absorption, because one of the things that we noticed was that some of these deterministic IDs that are used very heavily by marketers were kind of in the six, seven spot, despite you know their prevalence of actually being utilized in the ecosystem. So I'm sorry, what would absorption mean? So ID absorption, and if you check out our, our site, it's free to for all um, app.sincera.io. Absorption just says quite sim- simply, okay, the ID is there by the publisher, but how many SSPs are picking it up? Something like Ramp ID has a much higher absorption because it's in demand. Right. It's actually being used uh, to transact. Some of these IDs are are more, you know, to come that we expect DSPs to adopt them and to be able to transact, whereas others right. are currently being used quite a bit. All right. Number five, Panorama. Yeah. So Panorama is a a mixed ID, uh, heavily probabilistic, but taking in some deterministic elements. And it's from Lodemy. And I think the thing that's super interesting about Panorama to me is just the amount of growth that they've done on this chart. And so, you know, full disclosure, they're a customer, but seven of the top eight IDs are, are customers of Sincera. But what's really interesting about Panorama is like they have been jumping up this chart really, really quickly. And that's not something you typically see in this space. Like I said, usually it's a, you know, it, it takes a long time for publishers to, to sort of adopt and, and move up. But, but Panorama's growth has been really, really notable. That's interesting. As an editorial note, I interviewed Andy Monfried for the Architecture website and podcast uh, just this week. So that interview will probably come out in a week or two. Uh, so look forward to that. And he does discuss Panorama. Um, What's also interesting is um, Lodemy was founded in 2006. So this is this is not not a startup. This is a mature business that uh, seems to be uh, sort of in its in its third wave. So uh, hats off to them. Yeah. Also, they uh, were firmly positioned as a DMP, which is a very unpopular sort of right. passe category. And they've and they've shifted in their new uh, use case is really about activation. Um, so you go from your customer uh, management platform into Lodemy for activation. That's at least how they're positioning themselves. Yeah. Spherical, I think, is their new feature set. It is the product velocity is really quite impressive for a company of that of that age. All right, enough with the Lodemy commercial. Uh, number four, uh, another unified. So is this unified ID one? Yeah, this is unified ID 1.0. And, and this kind of also proves the point of the time horizon. Unified ID 1.0 was probably the first ID that we built. It started at Index, but then we ported the, the code to, to Prebit. Those of us who worked on some of this early identifier functionality for publishers. And unified ID 1.0 is the trade desk's DSP cookie-based ID. It is the one they've been using all this time, used to be called adserver.org. And it's very interesting that it's got such a big footprint because it was the first. And so it's had the most time to to just sort of like passively get picked up. And, you know, it got a lot of interest to begin with because it was something new and unique. But I don't think this is meaningfully used by anyone other than Trade Desk. 
Yeah, I think I think Unified ID uh, generates immediate revenue for publishers because the Trade Desk is the largest or second largest DSP out there. But it, it's not really Unified ID. It's it's a bit of marketing. It's uh, no one else uses it besides Trade Desk. Right. All right. Number three, Critio. So Critio's uh, idea is super interesting. Externally, it, it mostly functions as a, a cookie-based ID. Like it, I don't really think it's it's used broadly beyond anyone other than Critio. But what's super fascinating about Critio is that it is tied to a really monstrous graph that they have. And I worked there m- many years ago, and you know the the graph was you know measured in the billions, and and fifty percent of it was deterministic. So if you think about all, and it makes sense, all that shopping data, all that transaction data, it's a really super powerful graph that is behind this ID. Again, much like Unified ID 1 to Trade Desk, it benefits Critio spend, which is great. I don't know if it benefits many others, but it is, I would say, one of the biggest and most powerful graphs on this chart. And even, you know, even LiveRamp is, is super big and 100% deterministic. LiveRamp is very focused in the U.S. and Critio has a much larger international footprint. Yeah, there are different business models here. So the Critio, I imagine, to use your phrase, probably does, has very low absorption because Critio pretty much uses its own bidder uh, and its own tags. It doesn't need to go through the SSP to DSP channel and no one else uses it besides Critio. Mm-hmm. So Critio, Unified ID, those are both basically ways that publishers can juice the revenue by having better connections with some of the largest buyers out there. It makes sense. And they grow only at the pace that these businesses grow. So it's not like you know, you'd expect, and maybe I'm wrong here on this, Mike, you can correct me if I am. You probably don't expect them to, at least organically, you know, take a giant jump up the rankings unless something happens with their business and you know, things, things take off. Yeah, I don't see them taking a jump up of the rankings. But to Ari's point, if you were to sort of pivot this and say, which is going to have the biggest spend impact, I think for now, those two are are certainly there and then followed by by ramp ID, because you certainly see a lot of buying on particularly like Safari based traffic. And there's a real focus of enriching that with like their ATS product. So there's a bunch of case studies out about lifts and, and increased bid activity on ramp ID. But Ramp ID to me is the one um, who would most likely have like continued to ramp in terms of ad spend on cookieless traffic. You heard it here. Ramp is going to ramp. I, I think there is a <laughs> there is a world where Unified ID two is more broadly adopted than Unified ID one because if it has that deterministic ID, you can imagine other DSPs potentially playing nice with that. Yeah, they're actively investing in it too. So, like, you know, there's a ton of features coming around Unified ID2 to make it easier to deploy and stuff. So, I think you're right. All right. Number two, we're getting to the top. Um, so, this is also cut off. So, I don't have the full name, but it's pre bid something. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, you know, the repeated feedback doesn't get it to the top of the backlog here, Ari. Right. But um, so. <laughs> It's an Excel pre-bid. spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the pre-bid shared ID is, is number two. And, and this is similar to the use case that we talked about with, with Quantcast, which is that it's basically a, a first-party cookie-based ID. So it's it's unique per publisher. And publishers can use it in a variety of ways, frequency cappings, you know, some degree of session targeting. If they want to get like super crazy, they could use Google's uh, program to pass in this into DFP. But what's what's interesting about this one, like to me, prebid shared ID, this is kind of like the toy in the cereal box. Like you install prebid and it just kind of comes with it. 
So, so I don't know, like it's got a huge footprint and it's potentially a huge opportunity. I don't know how many publishers are actually using it. I, I don't hear a ton actually using it. And then Prebit sort of has a question, like, is it just always going to say, is, it, is there enough utility in this sort of simple first party ID for them to sort of make something more of it? Or does the, the functionality need to change? But it has a huge footprint, but I think it just sort of, a lot of times it just comes along for the ride with a Prebit deployment. So uh, drum roll, maybe. Uh, so the number one uh, most commonly found identifier is ID5. Um, yeah. So quick, quick disclaimer, both Eric and I are investors in ID5, but that has nothing to do with the fact that we're covering it here. Uh, yeah. So ID5, bit of a surprise here. So uh, why are they on top and what are they? Yeah, yeah. So ID5, uh, you know, has used this chart to sort of say as part of their sales materials, like, you know, we're the number one identity graph you haven't heard of. I think it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's it's very telling. And I think they've done a, a super good job strategy-wise um, to really focus on the sell side and sort of go to all these publishers and be really disciplined from an international perspective, not just focusing on the US or, or a specific market and say like, you know, enable our ID, doesn't cost you anything as a publisher, will eventually, you know, we'll work towards driving um, additional ad spend. So in today's world that still has third-party cookies and third-party IDs on cookies, they also have an offering that does like graph matching, which does have an ad spend implication for using ID5. Not really a huge element for this, but how they how they did it was just really going out, talking to a ton of publishers, getting it deployed, being disciplined and driving that scale. Again, you know, they are a, a customer of Sincera and they can use our, our data to, to find gaps and, and grow their, their footprint. But I thought it was super interesting to them from a strategy perspective that they really intentionally focused on the sell side first to get scale. And now they're, they're winning some really big deals on the marketing side. They won a very big deal. And Matt told me I could mention it, but I'm still not going to name the name. I'll let him sort of say it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're getting some big marketers who want to use their ID, not just for targeting, for, but for attribution purposes. So I, I think it's an interesting strategy going super hard on, on sell side and then sort of leveraging that on the buy side. I feel like Panorama is sort of a fast follow on this strategy. Yeah, I, I think that's probably why they're top of the charts. They, they're European-based, for those who don't know, and uh, they went pretty hard in European publishers with a post-GDPR pitch that was probabilistic, so it could cover as much as possible, and now they're top of the charts. So, I mean, we spent like 10, 15 minutes on this list, and now I have to ask the question for both Eric and Mike. Like, does it matter? Does having a bigger footprint necessarily mean you're going to generate more revenue, more reach for customers? Um, is this uh, indicative of who's going to win these sort of identity wars? So I think there's there's two lenses I would sort of see, like, does it matter and who's going to win? I think the ID5 example is instructive because I think what actually matters is what marketers use. Because marketers won't use five different IDs the way the publishers do. Like they're integrating, as you mentioned, Ari, like tying it into CRM, you know, pushing it in, experimenting with clean rooms, like all these things. Like they can really only afford to have one identifier, if any, as a currency. So does the sell side footprint matter? I think it does insofar as it gets you into the conversation with the marketer. Like ID5 couldn't have conversations with the top 100, top 50 marketer if they didn't have this footprint. They can't just say, we've got this great tech. 
So it's the marketer utilization that really matters, which is why, like, I think something like Ramp ID and LiveRamp is super strong. Like Unified ID 2.0 has a has a, a huge amount of opportunity. It's not the footprint that matters. It's convincing the marketers based on the footprint. Yeah, I, I I agree with with Mike. I think um you know there's a there's definitely a scale element to this, right? Like you you can't service a large global uh, marketer or a large global agency uh, without the scale, right? So I think that's um, number one. And then yeah, number two, particularly from you know an, an identity perspective, you know there's not going to be integrations with you know a, a whole bunch of uh, identifiers. It's not like you know, buying media, it's not, you know, it's, it, it's a completely different business. So I think, um, scale becomes important and then it plays into the, is it just one or is it going to be, you know, three? Is it, is it going to be five? Because, you know, as of to date, you know, you, you need both deterministic and probabilistic to just grow your, your ability to target. Yeah, I'm definitely a believer of there. It's not winner takes all. It's top five winners take all or something like that. Um, yeah, I think that, that's right. That, yeah, there'll be a couple of deterministic, a couple of probabilistic uh, in some combinations that you can use. And I would also think that like tying an identity to a particular platform is a really sort of risky strategy because mm-hmm. effectively, if someone doesn't want to use your platform for one reason or another, that identity is no longer useful to you. I think DSPs sort of found that out. And Ari, maybe you can tell us like the hard way. A lot of people sort of crow about, oh, third-party cookies for, you know, they were just a hack. We didn't mean for them to be like this. And all that is true, I guess. But the DSP function, like the core functionality of a DSP and the technical design predicated that there is a internal ID that the DSP uses, and that is their cookie-based ID. So DSPs, like generation one DSPs, were all built with that expectation. And that's one of the reasons it took so long for these ID adoptions to occur is because there had to be like a significant architecture, uh, re-architecture done on DSPs to say, hey, there's a universe of IDs and we can ingest any of them and action on them in different ways. Like to your point, like that's the way software in the ad tech space needs to be designed going forward is the expectation that there's multiple IDs. Yeah. And the way I looked at it when I was part of Beeswax was that um, all these folks would ask us all the time to um, to be able to bid on their IDs. And the question for me was always, where is is the raw data coming from that will make it actionable? And that raw data generally was coming from our customers. And that's why we did at Beeswax implement the ramp ID because so many of our customers were using live ramp for onboarding um, or using the graph in different ways so that we had that connection from the customer to the inventory. Whereas a different ID, I won't say particular pick on anyone, but uh, a different ID might have a lot of root, but doesn't on the back end of our side. So we would have to, you know, effectively either force our customers to become customers of that ID's products or build an onboarding service ourselves that somehow matched their IDs to it. So it just wasn't as compelling. So it, it, usefulness is really the end goal here. You want to be able to actually use this ID, not just um, have it. So yeah, so this is a pretty exciting area. I think if you if you imagine a world where an ID or some IDs are used on virtually every transaction to transact, to measure, to do attribution, et cetera, whoever, if someone owns that ID and is charging a fee on that, that could be quite a big business, don't you think? 
I think it's huge. I, I think it could, you know, it's basically the currency at which like a, a lot of these elements get transacted, particularly as you start to think about these new workflows that are emerging. Like, what does it look like when you, you know, you mentioned CDPs and passing data from, you know, directly from a transaction on a merchant and then being able to reach those, those users, like it becomes incredibly important. And I think it's, What's interesting about the identifiers is that the scenarios of how customers can use them continues to grow. Uh, and I think that's exciting, certainly from a business model perspective and, and just observing the space. Totally agree with you. All right, let's move on from ideas. Let's uh, do some, somewhat of a news wrap up. What's going on in the market over the past week? Last week, we had the bombshell DOJ thing took up almost all of our time. This week is a smattering of interesting things. I'll start with the uh, sort of dust up between uh, the IAB, the 4As, and the ANA. Mike, were you at the IAB leadership conference? Yeah, I was there. I was there. Okay. Neither Eric or I were there, so you you were the only witness to the crimes uh, being discussed. <laughs> did, did you see this the, the speech in question? Did you attend, Mike? I didn't see the speech in question. I saw a couple of tweets after the fact. I hate to do the classic ad tech thing. It's like, oh, I was there for the meetings. So I, I missed the speech, but I, I was surprised how how much legs how much legs the story had. All right, so let me try to summarize really quick here. Um, IAB uh, had its annual leadership meeting. Um, the IAB CEO David Cohen gave a speech that was a bit prickly about um, the behaviors of privacy advocates and lawmakers and uh, and Apple in this ongoing sort of rugby scrum around privacy. And in reaction, uh, surprisingly, several of the other trade groups, namely the 4As and ANA, uh, put out a statement saying, uh, sort of saying they weren't pleased with the um, tone of the conversation and making some remarks about as responsible marketers, we need to continue to put forward reasonable recommendations, blah, 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 blah. So is this a real disagreement or is it just that uh, Mr. Cohen said the things that we all think out loud? Anyone want to take Eric, that? Eric, I'm calling on you. <laughs> I, I found that, that last line funny. Um, so there's there's precedent for this. I, I, I can recall in, in you know previous ALMs that that I attended, you know, uh, Randall had some, you know, some some fire and brimstone type of speeches. Um, you know, again, I, I I wasn't there, but you know, I, I get the gist of what he was talking about. You know, the IAB, even though it, you know, sort of like representative of the entire ecosystem now that their models changed a little bit, you know, it's traditionally been representative of the sell side, um, publishers and, and platforms, and those are the um, constituents. That some of the regulation and certainly the Apple changes have have hurt the most. So I feel like he was, you know, in defense of of his, um, you know, constituency. And then on the other side, I do get what uh, the A and A and the Four is um, where they're coming from. In you know, just like you know, representing the marketers and I think marketers waking up to the fact that they need to be, you know, very much you know consumer centric and 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 thinking about the, the consumer experience and, and privacy. So I think it's a little bit of just you know speaking to and for their constituent bases um, more, more than anything else. And, and Mike, was there any buzz at the conference about his talking points or Honestly, does this only come out no. afterwards? I, I only saw it on Twitter, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it. So I thought it was interesting. And then sort of reading the text and some of the quotes, what strikes me, and I'll sort of put the ANA th uh, response to the side, it's just like, it just feels like somewhat of an unforced error 
Like, I do think there are, you know, let's call it like extremists on, on either side. And there are some folks who, who, who are operating from the privacy, like max privacy scenario, but their real position is that effectively advertising shouldn't exist. And so there's not really a discussion or something that can, a compromise that can come forward when like that's your starting position. And I think too often both sides are, are sort of polluted with folks who have like nothing should change and, you know, advertising should, should not exist. It's, it's a terrible blight on, on humanity. And it's like when you have those folks participating, it, it just, it just gets heated. Uh, it's sort of point one. And so I think the, the speeches felt like it was, directed against those folks like using words like extremists but then finally like using things like privacy is a war to be won like just like these violent like macho words it's like i don't know to what who that serves like in what degree like is that suddenly going to get people to take the ied more seriously i've thought that one of the issues for the longest time when apple was doing you know all of their policy changes they didn't talk to the ied because they didn't necessarily seem to view them as a credible partner where they could compromise and this kind well, of that's like, actually sorry yeah. to interrupt but that that news came out subsequently um right. that the iab and apple are actually having a meeting it's like uh, right maybe this is 4d chess and this was all, all all along but to me it's just like this kind of like you know super macho hyperbole it doesn't seem to to me it seems like it it, it, it creates more entrenchment than it does compromise now we'll see what happens with this meeting uh, i think it's super cool that there's a meeting happening um but yeah that to me was my read is like i'm glad it wasn't just like a mealy mouth nothing burger of a speech and platitudes but also like does it have to be so fire and brimstone yeah yeah oh god i would love to be in that apple ib meeting but i'm not gonna be invited all right another piece of news uh that's been going around is uh earning season um so as of today when we're recording this uh facebook is share meta shares are skyrocketing um meanwhile snap shares are falling and they had pretty similar results which was ad revenue was basically flat i think meta was up two percent in constant currency um, on ad revenue year over year but the outlook uh for snap was quite poor and uh i'm not sure are we is there a bigger lesson here or is this just companies executing not executing eric maybe you want to take that one I mean, sentiment around Meta was so negative for, for quite some time. I mean, the, the stock went down to, to like 90 something dollars. And I think it's, um, it's, it's doubled from, from there. I think people have been, you know, really concerned about the focus on metaverse, concerned about the, uh, you know, long term effects of the Apple, um, you know, identity, uh, problem, you know, questions. Around employee numbers and all that. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you take a step back, you know, they, they showed, you know, good progress in, you know, stemming some of the bleeding from a, a revenue standpoint, you know, up, up 2%. They showed the, you know, that they're, you know, investing where they should, i.e. in artificial intelligence, um, and showing promise there. Some of the metrics that they point to are not necessarily like apples to apples, but they, you know, said like conversions are up something like 20%. So I think it's, Good signaling that they're focused on the core, they're focused on the product, they're focused on you know investing in AI, which um, you know from my perspective should really be the focus uh, for the company. And they're just operating at scale. I mean, it's two, two billion users, right? And um, they're doing a massive stock buyback, which um, which the, the, the street wanted. So you know, with Zuck, I mean, he um, 
it's hard to bet against that guy. Oftentimes, you know, things get really, really negative and people think this thing is, is, is about to fall apart. And, uh, he, he comes back hard, comes back swinging. So, uh, so, so good on them. Yeah, I think there's still a question around growth. I mean, if the last three or four quarters, growth has been anemic or negative in several quarters. So if you look at face at Meta, you know, a scaled company with no growth, the valuation should be kind of just the uh, an old fashioned DCF of uh, how much money it makes versus how long it's going to continue. Um, I do wonder um, where the growth comes from in these out years, uh, given limited M&A opportunities and the metaverse going slowly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not a question for anyone, but just my opinion. Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? I thought it was really cool. I mean, Eric, I think maybe this is what you meant by AI, but the, the probabilistic attribution to me is the most interesting element out of all of this. And so I wonder, you know, is there a moat around that? And if customers can buy in and they believe the probabilistic attribution, what does that mean for, for others who do similarly? Like, is there a moat that Facebook can only do this? Um, how do they trust but verify if you're a marketer? Yeah, I think you have to be very large to do probabilistic attribution at scale uh, because you need all that data and all the variations of the data. And really, Google and Meta are the two that have put it out there and are in you know production with that at scale. I do wonder if someone the size of Snap, who has which has far less data, does not have pixels on web pages, does not have you know history of 20 years or however many years of commerce, if they could do anything that is remotely like what Google and Meta can do in terms of using AI for marketing purposes. That's exactly right. And which is why I think it's fantastic. Again, if you, you know, are an employee or a fan or investor in Meta, that they're, they're focused um, here, which is, you know, I think one of their moats and I think a, a long-term strategic advantage because they're just so large and that, you know, the models can just get better and better. So um, let's close this out on a tweet that I sent. Um, obviously, the main content of this entire podcast are my tweets. Um, so uh, I sent out this tweet asking people to rank what the worst job in tech is. Um, and so I'll list you the options um, and you can tell me your point of view. Uh, obviously, you're both gainfully employed, so not, not looking for a job these days, uh, which are pretty hard to find. All right. What is the worst job in tech? HR at Google. Investor Relations IR at Snap, PR at Meta, or Product at Twitter. Um, Mike, do you want to take it? What, what's your vote? I think you, the comments said it super well, that it's, there is a huge time series component. But I think I voted for, and it looked, uh, was uh, Product at Twitter. Right, right. So product at Twitter was my vote as well. Um, and it's important to note that it has been a bad job forever. It hasn't just been a bad job under the current management. Uh, product at Twitter is, has been a bad job since Twitter was founded under, I think it's fifth CEO now. Product's always been a bad job there. Um, Eric, what's your vote? <laughs> I give Twitter credit. The, 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 the product is, um, is getting better. Just the view counts and, you know, what they're doing in terms of, uh, making, making it faster and, um, they're shipping. They hadn't shipped in years. They're shipping. So I, I think, um, the, the fact that it's, uh, it's got such low expectations and there's such bad precedent. I think it could be like the best job in tech because you can show that this thing can actually work and you can, you can ship and you can, you can change some, some hearts and minds. I think, yeah, I think uh, HR at uh, at Google, um, you know, specifically over the course of the past uh, few weeks and months, probably gets my vote. Uh, it sounds like it was uh, it was a pr pretty tough time 
uh, a couple of weeks ago. Historically, the entitlement at Google must have been pretty rankling to be in HR and uh, have the people paid as much as they are, getting the free massages and everything, and still complaining about everything. Yeah, um, and again, it's uh, it's like a it's a scale thing. Um, they uh, there was that that quote that everybody pulled out that you know because their their layoffs uh, so thought it was you know kind of bungled. Um, they have thirty thousand managers. So it's like we can't tell all the managers because we have thirty thousand managers. It's wild, <laughs> just the the org that uh, that has been uh, been sort of created over time there. Eric, yeah, kind well, of that's your problem right there, right? <laughs> your thirty thousand managers. Mike, what did you just ask? I said, what kind of car do you drive? Really? Yeah, curious. <laughs> is it a Tesla? I, I drive a Tesla. Oh, oh, wow. Gee, uh, I'm a real Karnak. I, I guess I, I mean, I agree with Ari that it's, it's been a bad job for a long time. I think it's uh, a, a very difficult and thankless job, you know, but I think like right now, like I think if you're planting a flag on the uh, tweet view counts as, you know, innovation and ship velocity, uh, you know, <laughs> I think there's maybe a job at the White House uh, press secretary the way that you can spin some of these things because that is impressive stuff. Well, getting spicy here. <laughs> All right, let's close it out on that. Um, so um, as a reminder, you can get our in-depth interviews with CTOs at Marketecture TV uh, in addition to this weekly podcast. And please subscribe. There's a free subscription as well as a paid subscription. Um, so Mike and Eric, thank you so much for being here. This is a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, the top 10 identifiers was, uh, was awesome. So thanks, Mike, for doing that. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. It was a blast. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.